Well, good morning. It's a privilege to welcome you to Central today, where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're all about. That's what all of our ministries are oriented toward, transformation by the power of Jesus. We're continuing our series that we've been studying this fall called Life by Design, examining what does it mean to be made in God's image. And today, we're going to study hospitality. We've been made for community. We've been made for relationship with one another. In other words, as image bearers of God, we're made for God's redemptive mission in this world, and that includes gospel hospitality. We're going to study the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles or open your pew Bibles to Luke 10. We'll be studying verses 25 to 37 with this question in mind. What does gospel hospitality look like? What might it look like us to follow after the Lord Jesus in extending his welcome to sinners like ourselves? Let's pray together as we turn to God's word. Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit and open our eyes that we might behold Jesus and renew our wills that we would follow after him. And so, Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. We ask all this in Christ's strong name. Amen. Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. Hear God's word. And behold... A lawyer stood up and put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, or we could translate it, continue doing this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This parable of the good Samaritan is one of the hardest ones to preach because we're so familiar with it. Even that language of Good Samaritan has kind of worked its way into our cultural vocabulary. And even if you don't come from a religious background, you probably have heard this story or some version of the Good Samaritan before. But I wonder if because we're so familiar, we haven't really heard the story in a while. 
We might think of good Samaritans as people who do nice things for other people who are in need. Or we might think of the Good Samaritan RV Club who helps stranded motorists out. But what I want to tell you is this story is so much deeper than that and it's more unexpected than we might think at first blush. So what I'd like to encourage us to do this morning is to hear this story with fresh ears. Hear it as if you've never heard it before. Let's dive in and try to understand what Jesus is teaching us about his design for hospitality. Because ultimately, that's what this story is about. God has made us and designed us for hospitality. Three points for us this morning. And the first one is this. The lawyer's question that he brought to Jesus reveals not only his, but our problem. And our problem is that we want to minimize God's call to love. We try to minimize it. We make it doable. We try to make it seem less demanding. Our problem is we seek to minimize God's call to love. How do we see that here? Well, we come in verse 25, and there's a lawyer that comes and asks Jesus a question. Now, in Jesus' day, a lawyer was someone who was an expert in biblical law. He was a biblical scholar. We might say that he was like a, a seminary professor, we could expect. And it was his job to understand and apply the Bible to everyday life. So this teacher comes to Jesus and asks a really good question. He asks him, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But Luke tells us that this lawyer didn't come to Jesus with a sincere motive. Rather, he asked to put Jesus to the test. He was trying to play gotcha with Jesus. He was trying to catch him in some way that he would violate the Jews' sense of what the law really is. But Jesus could tell what he was doing and responded to this lawyer's question with a question of his own. It says in verse 26, basically, how would you answer your own question? How do you read the law? What, is it, what does it mean to you? And Jesus asked the man, and the lawyer responded, as you might expect, a biblical scholar. He responded with a Bible quotation. He responded with quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, and essentially, love God fully and your neighbor completely. That's what we're supposed to do. Love God fully and your neighbor completely. But Jesus ratcheted it up a little bit in verse 28. When he responded, yes. Do this, or we could translate the verb tense there, keep on and on and on and on. Keep doing and doing and doing and doing these things, and you'll live. What Jesus is saying to this guy, he's saying, okay, obey that law perfectly. See where that gets you. Try to obey that law to love God perfectly with all of your faculties, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, all the time without fail. Think of God first and serve him and love him in every instance, every moment of your life. Even when you're bored, standing in the grocery store line, make sure that's the moment when you love God perfectly, even there. And oh, by the way, also love your neighbor perfectly all the time as well. Be as eager to have your neighbor experience the blessing that you desire for yourself. Be eager and to pursue your neighbor receiving every advantage that you seek to gain yourself. Make sure that they get that same advantage perfectly all the time, every moment of your life. Love God perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly. Now, if I were standing there, I would have probably said something like, oh, is that all Jesus, just, just that? Perfectly obey you every moment of every day. 
Do you realize if we can do that, we don't need a savior? If we can do that, it means that we're sinless that we can have the capacity to love God perfectly, the capacity to love and serve our neighbors all the time. But the right response to this is say, no way, Jesus. I can't do that. That's impossible. My whole life to be perfectly obedient, I can't go five minutes being completely obedient. We can't do it. That's the right response. That's the truth. And we may not want to see it, but our heart is so similar to that lawyer's heart. How so? He heard that command of Jesus, and it says in verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. He knew he couldn't do all that Jesus just laid out for him, and so he wanted to justify himself, to find some way to make a status before God as acceptable to him. He wanted to be good enough for God in that moment. We know what that feels like, don't we? We know what it feels like to get caught doing something that's disobedient. And when we get caught, when it's exposed, we try to minimize it, don't we? We try to cover it up, just kind of play it off and just, it's not that big a deal. And because we want to maintain this relationship of I'm acceptable to you. I'm good enough for you. I want to justify myself in your sight. That's what this lawyer wanted to do before Jesus. I can't do all that perfect stuff, but Jesus I want to be good enough. I want to be good enough in your sight. So he asked Jesus a question. If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself perfectly, who does that include again? Who is my neighbor? What he's saying to Jesus is, look, I can't do this all the time for everybody, but let me see if I can shrink the size of my neighborhood enough so that I might be able to do it with a couple of people around me who are counted as my neighbor. Maybe I could try to be obedient to your command with them. In Jesus' day, the rabbis taught a Jew's responsibility to love his neighbor only extended to fellow Jews. Everybody else didn't count as your neighbor. Only your fellow Jews. And so this man is saying, Jesus, um, Help me out here because I really want to know who I have to love. Help me limit who I have to love and how deeply I have to love them and still be counted in the good enough zone of your law. Still be counted acceptable in your sight. Be justified in your sight. Now, that lawyer's posture before Jesus reveals our hearts a lot because when God's commands seem too big, When they seem too demanding, we try to shave them off a little bit, make them seem a little more manageable, maybe make them easier to obey, easier to count myself in the the target zone of, yeah, I've been reasonably obedient. That's what we try to do with God's law. All of us do this. We have the same kind of heart. We need to justify ourselves in God's sight. Specifically, like this lawyer here, we can come up with all kinds of reasons of why this person or that person really is beyond the call for me to love them and serve them. They're outside the neighborhood somehow. How do we do that? Well, we we might exclude someone because they're so different from me. I just don't have anything in common with them, so I'm not going to get close to them and try to love them or care about them and serve them in some way. They're, they're way too different for me. Or maybe, Lord, if I try to get close enough to serve this person and know them well enough to love them, it's possible that their defilement of their life might rub off on me. 
If I get close enough to that person who's really corrupted in their life, if I get close enough to serve them and care about them, is it possible that I'm going to be swept up in their corruption? I'm going to be defiled because I'm, I'm close to them. Maybe I don't have to love people who fit in that category. Their lives are just too messed up. Or we might say, I'm happy to love and serve somebody whose life is wrecked by some accident, by some kind of illness or something. But the people who've wrecked their own lives, surely I don't have to love and care about and serve them. As we used to say sometimes in, in old Mississippi, you made your bed, now you got to lie in it. You made a mess of your life, I'm not getting you out of it. If you've made a mess of your life, surely I don't have to get closer to you and try to love and care and serve, serve you some way. If you've made a mess of your life, I don't have to get involved with you. You're not in my neighborhood. We try to minimize God's call to love people. But friends, can we realize that that's not how God has loved us? Because God found each one of us when we were having lives that were wrecked and a mess of our own making, when we were defiled, when our lives were corrupted, that's when the Lord came to us and he found us and saved us exactly when we were in that place. It's the kind of love that God has for you and for me. But who is it in your life that you exclude from your neighborhood? Who do you put on the outside that I really don't have to love that person I don't have to love that category of person. That's beyond reasonable expectation, God. The problem is that we seek to limit God's call to love him and God's call to love our neighbor. And so when this man comes before Jesus with this kind of, well, who is my neighbor posture, shrink the neighborhood, Jesus tells him a story to answer the question. And the story reveals God's design for hospitality, and it's this. He designed us to have an unexpected and unreasonable compassion. That's what hospitality really looks like, an unexpected and even unreasonable compassion. How do we see that in this story? Well, look at verse 30. Jesus said there was a man who went down, literally down, to Jericho. That, that, that's a road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho is a steep, windy, curvy road and Jericho is the lowest elevation point on the planet. It's really going down to Jericho. And there's this man who was walking down this road and he was attacked and left for dead in a ditch. And Jesus also says he was stripped. Now that was really important because in his day you could tell someone's nationality, you could tell if they were a Jew or not by either their language or their accent or by the clothes that they were wearing. But this man was unconscious. He's laying in a ditch. He's not talking. There's no way to tell his language nor his accent. He's stripped of all of his clothes. He could be anybody in that ditch. He could be a Jew. He could be a Gentile. He could be a Samaritan. There's no way to tell whether this guy's my neighbor or not. All we see is a human being made in God's image, harmed, laying in a ditch. So Jesus says, verse 31, a priest wanders by. He's on his way down to Jericho too. Now, in Jesus' day, many, or not most, of the priests lived in Jericho. And they would travel up that road from Jericho to Jerusalem for their two-week temple assignment and then travel back home. So this guy is returning home after having worked in the presence of the Lord as a temple. 
taking needy people's petitions and concerns into the presence of God, and he comes upon, as he's going home, comes upon this unidentifiable man on the side of the road. And this guy just might be dead. He's laying there in the ditch. So what would a priest do? Who, the priest whose job was to intercede with God on behalf of needy people? What would the priest do when he comes upon a needy person on the side of the road? It's not an easy answer. See, as a priest, he had certain ceremonial purity laws he had to keep. And one of those laws was he could not come into contact with a dead body. If he did, if a priest comes into contact with a dead body, he would have to go back to this temple for this really long ceremonial cleansing process. And it was really expensive. And while he would be undergoing that process of becoming ceremonially clean again, he couldn't collect tithes as a priest. So that meant he wouldn't be able to provide food for his family and his household. So this was a big question. Do you see his dilemma? What if this man is dead in the ditch? What if I roll him over and as I touch him, if I roll him over, he turns out to be dead? If that's the case, my family's going to suffer. I can't take care of my family. If I touch this man and he's dead, then I've got to go back to the temple. I won't make any wages until this whole cleansing process is over. My family will suffer if I go try to meet this man's need. Do you see his dilemma? See the hard place he was? He, he was between a rock and a hard place. It would have been unreasonable for him to show hospitality to this man. So he made a reasonable calculation. I know that I'm responsible to serve my family. I know that I'm responsible to provide for my family. So I'm going to leave that man in the ditch. I might, might be called to serve him. I'm not sure, but I know that I'm called to serve my family. So I'm going to pass by. Do you feel the pinch that he had? Which am I really called to do in this place? His response of walking by was a reasonable response, right? Then a Levite came by. Verse 32, Levites were kind of the second tier temple workers with exact same concerns as the priests. So he had the same ceremonial requirements, the same cleansing was in in front of him. So he went on by too, not wanting to get close to the man who might be dead. And this is where the story gets dicey. The one who stopped was a Samaritan. And that was a big problem. Who were Samaritans? Well, Samaritans were the descendants of those who had left behind, been left behind in Israel after the nobles and the best and brightest were carried off into captivity in Assyria. You remember? The Jews that stayed behind and weren't carried off into captivity intermarried with other nations. They intermarried with the Canaanites that were still in, those, in that land. And so the Jews who came back considered the Samaritans half-breeds. They were sellouts. They were people who perverted the truth. They counted them as heretics because they used different scriptures. They even worshiped in a different place, Mount Gerizim. They didn't go to Jerusalem, the temple. They had their own temple. Jews hated Samaritans. They counted them heretics and half-breeds, and nobody wants anything to do with them. Who's that person in your life? Who's that category of Samaritan in your life, the, the person who is less than, the person who you think, I can't stand to be around those people. I don't want to be with that person. These are the people I, I want nothing to do with. 
problem was the Samaritan was the good guy in the story. You see why it became unsettling for this biblical scholar, unsettling in this parable? This Samaritan, this hated man by all the Jews, went to this image bearer of God who was in the ditch and bound up his wounds in verse 34 and even put him on his own animal. And that meant that the Samaritan had to walk. There wasn't room for a man to be on a donkey's back and the Samaritan to ride the creature at the same time. So he had to put him on his back while the Samaritan walked and take him to an inn. You might know that there aren't any archeological ruins of any inn on that entire road. It was a really dangerous road. They didn't build an inn on that road. Nobody wanted to stay on that road. So probably what Jesus is meaning is this Samaritan man on his, took his donkey into Jericho, a Jewish town. Remember, that's where the priests and the Levites lived. How do you think that would go over? A Samaritan man who was ethnically and religiously hated coming into a Jewish town with a possible dead man draped over his animal. What's everybody going to think? He probably did it. It's probably all his fault. They might have wanted to take revenge out on this Samaritan man. But what he did instead is he, he had this incredible personal cost, this unreasonable kindness and amazing, unreasonable compassion to help this man. That's what Jesus says in verse 33. The Samaritan looked on him and healed him in compassion. That's a word that's used over and over in the New Testament for the feeling of pity that God has for us in Christ. But it was the Samaritan who was exhibiting that heart of God. It was the heretic, it was the hated man exhibiting, demonstrating the character of God in this story. That would have been really unsettling for the lawyer. Maybe really unsettling for us, the, the person who I, I, I love to hate, the person whom I, my heart just keep, thinks keep them out of my life. They were the hero in the story. And that's where Jesus stopped the story. And if you don't write anything down from this whole message, I want you to write this down and think about it. The point of this passage is gospel neighboring. God's design for hospitality is as we have been loved by God, so we are to seek to love the other person. As we've been loved by God, so we are called to move toward and seek to love the other person. That's what gospel hospitality is. That's God's design. How do we see it here? Well, Jesus takes a practical turn in verse 36. He asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Was it the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? The lawyer couldn't even bring himself to name that it was the Samaritan. He called him the one who showed mercy in verse 37. And Jesus said, you go and you do likewise. Now, when you're interpreting a parable, most of the time, the point, points of the parable are tied to the main characters in it. So let's examine who these characters are and how we might relate to them. Who are the priests and the Levite? These were religious leaders who were more interested in being, shall we say, reasonable, being self-protective, wanting to keep themselves out of being engagement with the pain of another person. They inhabited a space of, I'm going to take care of me and I'm going to take care of mine. Is that like us? Maybe. 
Sometimes that is like me, at least. Maybe you can see yourself in there in some way. I, I don't want to get tangled up in that person's mess. I just don't want to go there, God. That might be us. It's worth self-examination of our hearts. Maybe we're more like the priest and the Levite than we might have originally thought. Who's the man in the ditch? Well, think about it this way. Who's the guy who was stripped of all of his dignity and, and left, for, left dying in desperate need of being rescued? Or put it this way, who's the one who needs mercy because he can't love God and he can't love his neighbor perfectly? Who's that? Well, although he would be completely offended by it, the man in the ditch is the lawyer from this story. And it's you and me. Because when we see ourselves rightly, see ourselves truly, we are left for dead in our sin and in our guilt and everything we depend on to give us a sense of dignity and standing in our lives, when we stand before God, it's all stripped away. None of that matters. None of our sense of dignity, none of our, our pride of place, none of our, 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 our standing in our community, it's all stripped away, just like the man in the ditch. We're just like every other regular sinner. And it, we're no better, no worse than any other sinner. It doesn't matter if you've been a religious leader, a teacher, an elder, a deacon, a servant in the church, or you're sexually broken, or you're the town drunk, or you're notorious for deception and being a liar. We all alike in ourselves are desperate in our need for rescue from our sin. All of us have this corruption that goes down deep in our hearts there is no good guy pass when it comes to standing in the presence of God because there aren't any good guys. There aren't any good gals. All of us need rescuing. We're the guy in the ditch. I am. You are too. And that leads us to the next question. Who's the Samaritan? Who's the one who does the rescuing? Who, who extends an unreasonable love who not only risks his life, but actually gives his life to offer compassion to people who have nothing to offer him in return. Who does that? Who willingly walks into a city, not on a donkey with a man straight on the back of it, but walks into a city in full knowledge of what's going to happen to him? He's going to be beaten. He's going to be killed. He's going to be nailed to the cross in order to save the life of a desperate and needy people. Who, who does that? Who's the good Samaritan? It's Jesus. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who moves toward us and shows compassion to us when we don't deserve compassion. Jesus is the one who moves toward people like us and saves us from our sins, saves us out of our need. He doesn't save pretty good people because there aren't any pretty good people. He saves people who have need because of our sin. If we're going to stand before a holy God, we need to be rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the good Samaritan who comes after people like me and you. And then Jesus asked in verse 36, which of these proved to be a neighbor? If we would translate that from the Greek really literally, he's asking who became a neighbor? It's a very different question from who fits in my neighborhood. Jesus is telling the lawyer to ask who turns themselves into a neighbor of the person who's needy, who moves toward the person who needs an unreasonable compassion and needs an unreasonable hospitality. Who's the person who does that 
in an hour of need? That's the right question. Am I willing to become a neighbor? R.C. Sproul wrote on this passage, he said this, Jesus cuts across the traditions of men that says merely, I have to love those who are just like me. God calls us to something bigger and deeper and far more beautiful to instead ask the question, to whom might I have the ability to offer this unreasonable compassion that Jesus has offered to me? He saw me in my need, saw me in my distress, and Jesus has moved toward me to rescue me in his compassion. So who might I be able to do that for who also is in the same kind of need, the same kind of distress I've had? Where can I be a gospel neighbor, become a neighbor to somebody in need? Because that's exactly what Jesus has done. Jesus became our neighbor. He entered this world into a world of filth and sin and need to offer an unexpected compassion, an unreasonable compassion to people like us. Because he traveled the distance that's a lot farther than across a dusty road to a man in a ditch needing rescue. Jesus left the throne of heaven where everything was glorious and beautiful and right. And he entered into this world in order to bear the weight of our sin, to bear the weight of our need on the cross as he went to pay in his blood the ransom price for our rescue. Jesus has become your good neighbor. Jesus has entered into your life and mine to love us with an unexpected and unreasonable compassion. And then he turns in verse 37 and says, you go and do likewise. Wow. That's God's design for good neighboring. God's design for hospitality for you and for me. As we've received mercy from him, he calls us to give it away to put it on display for fellow sufferers to those whose lives are in need of rescue. Who is that person in your life? Who's the person who needs you to become their neighbor right now? Who's the person who you have an opportunity to extend to them an unexpected compassion, an unreasonable kindness, all because you have been given that same love by the Lord Jesus himself. Who is that person in your life? You see, we will never be motivated to take that step to become a neighbor without qualifying who deserves it versus who doesn't deserve it. We'll never take that step until we realize that when we were God's enemies, when we didn't deserve God's love, Christ died for us. That's what the apostle Paul says. It's when we see that we had such a great need that couldn't be met in any other way, but Jesus in his love moved toward us to save us. That's when we can be empowered to show that same kind of love to others in humility, to become gospel neighbors with an unreasonable, uncalculated compassion. But that's how Jesus continues to love us. He has loved us in that way and will walk with us as we seek to love one another that way as well. So let me ask you, whose neighbor are you becoming? Where is God's design for hospitality? Where can it take root in your life? It might be with somebody who's outside your orbit, 
somebody who's not in your friendship circle, somebody outside your neighborhood. Maybe it's even someone with whom you have serious disagreements. But can you expand your neighborhood a little bit? Be boldly called into this unreasonable hospitality and invite other people into your life and share your life with them. Share with them the love that Jesus has offered to you. Thanksgiving is a great week to try it. We all have people in our lives whom it might be hard to love. What if because of the love that Christ has shown to you, you invite them into your space in the holidays? for the sole purpose of extending to them the hospitality and love that you have received from Christ you're gonna offer to them. Who's that person? Might be somebody in your workplace. Maybe somebody who lives next door to you. It might be somebody you met at the gym. Maybe it's a family on the soccer team where your kids play soccer. Maybe it's somebody who's really different from you and broken in ways you're not broken. You can't imagine getting closer to them Maybe it's a family right here in Central. But here you are standing on the road and you see someone struggling. What do you do? Hospitality might seem really unreasonable. I think the Lord would call us to take another long, hard look at the cross where the King of glory became your neighbor to give you and me mercy. And then with a full view of that kind of love that you have received, move toward the other with an unreasonable hospitality, an unexpected compassion, and go and do likewise in Jesus' strength and in the power of his love. If you've experienced the love of Christ, give it away. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you have looked on us with compassion and with pity. You have looked on our need, and rather than turning away and doing the reasonable thing, you moved toward us. We pray that you would make us a church full of people who were willing to live with an unreasonable compassion and hospitality, that other people who are in the same kinds of needs that we have might know that there's a God who loves them. And may they feel it and know it through us. Make us that kind of people and that kind of church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.